You are listening to an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel, York Region. For more information, visit harvestyorkregion.ca. Welcome, church. I'd invite you to take your Bibles this morning and open them to Luke, Luke chapter 19. Luke chapter 19. Pastor Paul and his wife Sue are away on vacation um, for a couple weeks, and we ourselves today will be studying this passage, Luke 19, that often it's referred to as the parable um, of the minus. I remember um, a while ago uh, writing, after experiencing this very, very thing, writing it on Twitter, uh, when expectations are not communicated, it almost always ends in disappointment. And I wrote it because I realized that I was the one that wasn't rightly communicating expectations and many people were left disappointed. Maybe you've experienced this yourself. Someone did not communicate some vital information and you uh, were disappointed because of it. Or you yourself um, wanted something but didn't communicate it and um, it didn't happen. Maybe you've experienced this at school or at work. Um, I'm, I recently started a master's degree I finished my first course a couple weeks ago. I'm in my second course now. And I, w- I was really pleased with the way that I was uh, doing in my first course uh, until I got to the final because I expected one thing because I believed that certain thing was communicated. And when I opened, uh, pressed the open button on my browser and the clock started ticking, I realized it was completely something different. And I was not very pleased with that. Uh, maybe parents... Uh, you have uh, tried to rightly communicate um, expectations at home, time on internet or even chores, or, or maybe, like, maybe like you, spouse, you've realized something about uh, your spouse. Um, they're not telepathic. Um, foolishly, um, I think sometimes the best way to communicate things to my wife is somehow to think it myself and keep it in my mind, but that never works. Expectations left uncommunicated almost always end in disappointment. Uh, This very reason is why Jesus spoke the parable of the minus. Uh, Just before, uh, just at the beginning of uh, our passage today, he said that he proceeded to tell them a parable, verse 11, because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. Now, we're going to see in a minute why they had these improper expectations, but Jesus, being the good shepherd and the good teacher that he was, and knowing what his purpose was and what the Father expected of him, he needed to level the field and show what their proper expectations for his kingdom should be. So he told this story to illustrate it, the story that we call uh, the parable of the minus. And from this story, we the church today are going to understand that Jesus communicates five expectations of his coming kingdom. Five expectations of his coming kingdom that should motivate the church to be earnestly waiting for his return and eagerly working as witnesses of the gospel. This is what the passage will teach us today, but, but before we dive into it, let's read the whole ch- passage together. So let's stand as we often do in honor of the reading of God's word. 
Luke chapter 19, verse 11 to verse 27. This is God's word. It speaks to us today, saying, As they heard these things, he proceeded to tell them a parable, because he was near to Jerusalem, because they supposed the kingdom of God was appear, to appear immediately. And he said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas and said to them, engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him that he might know what they had been gained by doing business. The first came before him saying, Lord, your mina has made 10 minas more. And he said to him, well done, good servant, because you have been faithful in very little, you shall have authority over 10 cities. And the second came saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, and you are to be over five cities. Then another came, saying, Lord, here's your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief, for I was afraid of you, because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit, and you reap what you did not sow. He said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow? Why then did you not put my money in the bank and at my coming I might have collected it with interest? And he said to those who stood by, take the mina from him and give it to the one who is 10 minas. And they said to him, Lord, he is 10 minas. I tell you to everyone who has more will be given, but from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. Church, let's pray together. Lord in heaven, we ask that your Holy Spirit would be our teacher today. You said that your spirit would be given that we might understand all things that Christ instructed. And here we have the instruction of Christ. So teach us by your Holy Spirit's power. Show us, Lord God, how we must correctly align our hearts with yours, that we might not impose our expectations on you, but that we would submit to your expectations for us, and that we would eagerly wait for you and earnestly work as you have called us to do. Help us, we pray. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear. In Jesus' name, amen. Five expectations for Christ and his coming kingdom. Here's the first one, write it down. Uh, the kingdom will come when Christ returns. The kingdom will come when Christ returns. We see this in verse 11 and 12. You see, um, during Jesus' time, uh, the nation of Israel did not have autonomy. They had some um, capacity to govern themselves with their own rules and laws, and, but they were oppressed under foreign Roman occupation. And um, as they were oppressed, they were waiting and longing for the fulfillment of the promises that God made through his holy prophets 
They were waiting for the Messiah. So you see, when they heard Jesus say in verse 9 and verse 10, look at those verses, today salvation has come to this house since he is also son of Abraham. For the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. When they heard this term son of man, it increased their expectations for the kingdom. In fact, they were mere eight weeks away from when Jesus would be crucified. Jesus was traveling from Galilee towards Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. He stopped in Jericho, and this is where he told the parable. And when they heard this term, son of man, as they were on their way to Jerusalem, they supposed, this is the one, this is the Messiah, we're going to the capital city, we're inaugurating the king, it's coming, the Romans are going. But you see, the son of man was a term that was used by the prophet Daniel in Daniel chapter 7. In Daniel chapter 7, listen to the language of this, and it, it would seem right that they would expect a king and a coming kingdom. Daniel 7 says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. They had expectations of this, but Jesus needed to, he needed to correct them. And let me teach you something about Old Testament prophecy, all right? When an Old Testament prophet like Daniel looked into the future and foretold about the coming Messiah who would establish an eternal, autonomous kingdom, it, these prophets looked into the future in the same way that we might look at a peak's of a mountain range far in the distance, right? Daniel looked into the future and he saw uh, one peak that was a victorious conquering king. Yet the prophet Isaiah himself also looked into the distance and he saw the peak of a man of sorrows, a suffering servant who would offer himself for the sins of many. Isaiah 55, verse four. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. Now, as time progressed, it was obvious that these prophecies would both be fulfilled in Christ. But as you might look at peaks of a mountain range in the distance and look like these peaks look really, really close together, but then when you would walk up to the foot of the mountain, you might see there's a massive valley separating many miles in between these two mountains. And it's the same way with prophecy. Jesus first came as a suffering servant to offer his life as a sacrifice for the forgiveness of many. And he said he would return as a conquering king to establish his kingdom. And he told this parable to illustrate to them that in the meantime, they had work to do. In fact, this is exactly what Jesus said in Acts chapter one, just before he ascended into heaven. 
The disciples asked, Lord, will you at this time restore to the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know the times of the seasons that the Father is fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and to the ends of the earth. The kingdom will come when Christ returns, but as we are earnestly waiting, we are eagerly waiting, we must be earnestly working. We have work to do. First expectation, the kingdom will come when Christ returns. Then write this down. Second expectation, everyone will be held to account before Christ. In verse 13 to verse 15, Jesus introduces the characters of the parable. The nobleman represents Jesus himself. And then there are three others. Calling 10 of his servants, he gave them 10 minas. He said to them, engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him, that he might know what they had gained by doing business. So the nobleman is represented by Jesus. Now the citizens represent those who willingly and openly uh, reject Jesus' authority as the son of man who would inherit the kingdom. And the servants represent two types of people. The servants represent both true followers of Jesus Christ and those who perceive themselves to be true followers of Jesus because of some mere association, but in reality, they're frauds. The mina itself represents something too. The mina represents the work that we've been given to do, the witness of the gospel in the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, all of us will be held account, all those who call in the name of the Lord, who believe themselves to be true followers of Jesus Christ, will be held to account one day. And I wonder, what is it that we're truly investing in this world? I had a conversation with one of the, uh, a church member who was here at Harvest Kids uh, University training to serve. And he asked me, oh, how are you doing? And I said, oh, I'm pretty busy. And he said, yeah, me too. And then I said, you know, it's worth it though. And he said, that's right. We're not gonna get rewards for recreation, are we? I was like, wow, that's right. That's right. You see, church, the gospel is more valuable than anything that you could want in this life. It's more valuable than gold, more valuable than silver, more valuable than paying off your student debt, more valuable than finishing the mortgage, more valuable than the job, the friend, the wife that you want. And we will be rewarded in heaven for directly in proportion to the degree that we invest the gospel. In fact, 1 Corinthians 3 says that everything that we have in life, everything that we invest in life will be stacked up on an altar. Those that we do in the name of the Lord Jesus will be stacked up as gold, silver, precious metals. But on the other hand, that which we do 
which demonstrate that our treasures are here on earth and not in heaven, recreation, you name it, you know what it is for you. You know what God calls that? Wood, hay, and stubble. And both of these things will be put on an altar and a match will be thrown on it. Will you be able to hand to the Lord in the last day ashes or refined gold? If it is not done in the name of the Lord, if you're not investing for the sake of the gospel, it will be ashes. I fear we do not understand the true value of the gospel, but what we do is we treat it like a commemorative collector coin. I have a lot of collector coins. They sit in a box at home. Maybe you have collectible coins too. Uh, I have this one collector coin that I found recently. It's from my grandma. It's a, it's a Austrian shilling and um, it commemorates the 1976 Winter Olympics in um, Austria, Innsbruck, Austria. And I found this, I was like, oh, this is cool. I wonder if this is worth anything. And I went online and did some research and it, was like, it does have some value. It was worth about like 15 to 20 bucks. Collectors were willing to buy it for about that amount, but, but only collectors. You see, ever since the Euro was introduced, the shilling has been demonetized and isn't in currency anymore. So the best value that this coin has is to be stored on a shelf to display or, or, or put, put in a box and forgotten or worthless. How do you treat the gospel? Like something valuable to be invested into others that you love? Or do you put it on a shelf to collect dust and only pull it out a couple Sundays for sure Christmas and Easter the gospel is the most valuable thing and God has given it to you to enjoy to share in and that others might share in it also as you invest it into them the kingdom will come when Christ returns everyone will be held to account before Christ then this write this down Faithfulness will be abundantly rewarded. Faithfulness will be abundantly rewarded. I hope for those of you here who with all of your heart's desire, you want to invest the gospel. You know its value. It's not in the shelf, it's in the marketplaces incurring interest and bringing return for you who are investing the gospel i hope this point in the sermon is one of the most comforting times you've ever felt in church because faithfulness will be abundantly rewarded let's read verse 16 to verse 19 the first servant came before him saying lord your mina has made 10 minas more and he said to him well done good servant because you have been faithful in very little you shall have authority over 10 cities. And the second came saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, and you are to be over five cities. Like I said, I hope for you that are investing in the gospel, this word is so encouraging and so comforting to you. Notice the attitude of the servants. They didn't take credit for the return that they gained on the investment. The language conveys that your mina, the mina itself, brought the return. It wasn't my entrepreneurial skill. 
The mine was so valuable, I just put it in the market and it went to work because it's so valuable. The mine itself brought the return. And notice the proportion of the reward. The first servant saw a 1,000% reward on his turn, return at 10 times, and he received authority then over 10 cities. The second servant saw a 500%, five times of a return, and he was given authority over five cities. But what I want you to see is that this reward is overwhelmingly, abundantly, incomprehensibly greater than what they actually deserved. Okay, so a mina in Christ's day represented three months' wages for a general laborer. I asked one of my buddies who does a general labor job how much, how much people in, in that line of work make. And said, so, well, skilled laborers make about like, you know, uh, 30, 20, 20, 30 plus, uh, but general laborers are like 11 to 16. So, so let's put in simple $15 at it, all right? And I want to try and look at this in numbers that are relevant to our society, but understand these numbers are, they're just principles. It's probably not like a direct equivalent to Jesus' day, but I want you to see just how overwhelming this is. So if a general laborer making $15 an hour and my buddy, he's working at minimum 50 hours a week. Over three months, that's going to be $9,000, all right? So consider that you were given $9,000 to invest. And over a certain amount of time, hey, you made a 1,000% return on investment. That's, that's good. That, that's great. That goes from 90000 to uh, 9000 to 90000 that's, that's fantastic. $90,000 is, is going to pay. That's, that's like way more than your salary that you would make for, for one year. Do you know how much the budget for 2015 for the city of Markham was? Do you know how much the budget would be for 10 cities of Markham? Maybe, maybe if you did good at your work, what, you, what would you get, like a, a good a Christmas bonus, you know, a better, or maybe like a bump in a managerial position? How about being entrusted from at first $9,000 to a budget 10 times the size of the city of Markham's? 9000 to $4,265,000,000. That is ridiculous. That is way more abundantly than that servant deserved. But church, faithful Christian, as much as you love the gospel now, as much as you enjoy the fullness of the presence of Jesus Christ now, the reward you will get in the kingdom for your faithfulness on earth will be incomprehensibly, overwhelmingly, abundantly more than you could ever imagine. And it will be direct proportion to the faithfulness that you invest the gospel now. So faithful Christian, I know you're weary. I know you're exhausted. But know this, it's totally worth it. If there is anything that is worth spending ourselves in exhaustion at the end of the day for, it's the gospel.
don't give up. The Lord sees your labor. He records your labor. How else will he be able to know how directly to proportion your reward? He sees it. He records it. Don't give up. Keep investing. You know the value of the gospel. It's worth it. Faithfulness will be abundantly rewarded. But then this, write this down. Faithlessness will be exposed and condemned. Faithlessness will be exposed and condemned. Let's read verse 20 to 26. Then another, now another can also be translated a different. Not like another, like just the next person in the line, like someone that isn't, doesn't fit in the line. Then another came saying, Lord, here is your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief, for I was afraid of you because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and you reap what you did not sow. He said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow? Why then did you not put my money in the bank? And at my coming, I might have collected it with interest. And he said to those who stood by, take the mina from him and give it to the one who has 10 minas. And they said to him, Lord, he has 10 minas. I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. Listen to this carefully. This is the key interpretive passage for the whole text that I believe defines that though this guy thinks he's a faithful servant, he isn't, and he's a fraud. From the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. While I hope what we just saw in faithfulness is the most comforted some of you might feel and the comfort you have needed. For others of you here, I hope this moment is the most uncomfortable you've ever felt in a sermon before. Because if this is you, and I'm gonna ask if it's you in a moment, if this is you, you have no confidence in the day of judgment. Because you will be exposed and you will be condemned. Let's first understand who this passage explains so that you can ask yourself, am I actually him? Notice that he doesn't hide his willful disobedience. Yeah, you told me to invest it. I don't care. I laid it away. Doesn't hide his willful disobedience. But then this, this is, this is shameful. Notice that he harbored bitter contempt to the nobleman and slandered his character. He said, I was afraid of you. Why? Because you were a severe man. And then he slanders him. You take what you did not deposit and you reap what you did. He called him a thief. Is, is this noble man a thief? He just gave these guys 10 cities. No, no, no. If, this noble man is generous. But he's bitter. And he is contempt. And he calls him a severe thief. And he, he justifies disobedience by saying, I was afraid. I was afraid. That's why I didn't do it. Because I thought you were going to take more than you gave me because you, you do that. You're unjust. But then just, 
Not only is he disobedient, bitter in contempt, but I would suppose he's a hypocrite. Jesus, Jesus calls him out on it too. It's like, you think I'm severe? You think I would have taken more than you that I gave you? If you, if you really believe that, you lazy servant, you would have at least bare minimum put it in the bank and then given me minimal interest, but you didn't even do that. So your words are empty. He was willfully disobedient, bitter in contempt, and a wicked hypocrite. And he thought by the fact that he had the mina that he was a true servant. But what he thought he had was never there in the beginning and it was stripped away in the end. I say this as strong as I do because it's better that you hear it from me now than on the last day of judgment when you think you're supposed to get in and you're left outside the gates. Let's first understand who Jesus was talking about in his immediate section. Remember, he was talking to people in Jericho, all right? These people were imposing their expectations of the kingdom on Jesus. They believed he was gonna be the king now and they just wanted to be along for the ride. And Jesus was telling them, mm -mm, I'm, I'm gonna be away for some time and my true servants will work. The false servant is the one who imposes their expectation on Jesus and is not willing to submit to Christ's expectation for them. So here's the question, is that you? Maybe you're only here because you want to appease a family member. There's strife at home and they're a Christian and, and, and you don't really like faith that much, but you just want to appease them. It's like, whatever, I'll go to church. Maybe you have some bad theology taught you to expect that Jesus is going to balance your bottom line or guarantee your healing. Maybe you've been playing this game for so long that you have a bitter contempt towards Jesus and your thought is just like, man, this, he asks so much of me and he takes so much of me and he gives me, doesn't give me what I want and I'm not doing anything until I get mine. Maybe you've, been, maybe you've never settled down in a church because as soon as someone tries to hold you accountable, you're out the door. If you are imposing your expectations on Christ, and if you have never once, here's the defining thing, if you have never once took in an effort to invest the gospel into anyone, a family member, a friend, a stranger, your child, someone in church, if you have never invested what Christ has given you, I doubt you have it in the first place. And you have no confidence in the day of judgment. All right, let me ask my faithful questions a question, okay? You who are the true church, let me ask you a question. And you can, you can respond verbally. I would appreciate it if you did, actually. It would clarify things to show we're in agreement on this, okay? Tell me, church, what does Ephesians, or how does Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 say that we are saved? That's right, we are saved by grace through faith. Not of works, we can't boast. Tell me then also, how does James 2, 
verse 14 to 17, describe faith with zero works. Faith without works is dead. If you hear this and you think the answer to this question, am I the wicked servant, is yes. If you realize, I think I've been playing this game for a long time, then you need to hear what John the Baptist told the Pharisees. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. You call yourself a Christian, you believe in Jesus, submit to him as Lord. There ain't no bandwagon Christians gonna cruise their way into heaven. Jesus Christ is Lord. He gave himself up for us that you would no longer live for yourself but for him for, who for your sake died. 2 Corinthians chapter five. Faithfulness will be exposed and condemned. I pray that is not you, but if it is, don't find yourself in that boat today. Repent, turn, submit, and bear fruit. And you will know true life. And then this, finally, the fifth expectation. The enemies of Christ will be punished. I'm gonna read verse 14 and then verse 17. Fifth expectation of Christ's coming kingdom, the enemies of Christ will be punished. This is the citizens now, the citizens come into view. Excuse me. Verse 14, but his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him, saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. Then verse 27, but as for these enemies, the nobleman speaking, but as for these enemies of mine who do not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. Remember, the citizens were those who willfully and openly rejected Jesus' authority as the son of man who would rule over the kingdom, right? And there may be indeed here people today, maybe honestly, your friend brought you to church today and you're just checking this out and you're, maybe you're willing and honest to say, it's like, yeah, I'm not a Christian, I'm just... I don't, I'm not submitting to Jesus. I'm not believing to Jesus. I'm just really checking this out. I think you who are willing just to be honestly say that, thank you for your honesty. And, and I don't think I need to shake anything out of you. Now, now, I would say though, let the scripture reason with you, okay? Notice that the citizens, though they didn't want the nobleman to rule over them, that neither affected his right to rule nor his authority to execute his judgments of rule. The majority opinion of the citizens, we don't want him. He still gained the right of authority. He still executed his rights of authority to their demise. Consider that you have a friend who's, who was blind since birth, all right? A and you took them out into a starry sky to explain to them the beauty of the galaxies. And you specifically pointed out to them to the North Star and you said, this, the North Star, this, is the one, this guides the nautical seamen and the sailors and it has guided people for as long as it has existed. 
The blind man will not be able to acknowledge the North Star's existence, nor its authority to govern the lost or guide the lost, yet regardless of his ability to empirically agree with its existence, it still functions without authority. Imagine then you stayed out all night into the morning and the dawn uh, peaked into the horizon, the sun rose, and you began to describe the beauty of all the colors of the sunrise. They may never, your blind friend may never be able to empirically confirm by sight that the sunrise in its beauty is indeed there, but he will feel the warmth of its rays after a cold night. This friend may never be able to empirically acknowledge the sun as the earth orbits around it, but since the day of his birth and for all of time beforehand, the sun has governed time dictated the moment he was born and has had authority over every second of his life that followed. Whether any of us choose to acknowledge Christ's existence or not, Christ's authority or not, Jesus Christ has gained authority over all things, including you. But you might ask, was like, how, how, how can you know that? What proof demonstrates that Jesus has authority to judge all people? And you might mock at this, but because Jesus Christ rose from the dead, that is his, is his authority. Acts chapter 17, verse 30 to 31. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. It's true. The authority that Jesus Christ has gained to judge the living and the dead and you is because he himself rose from death into life. All reliable, relevant, historical data, Christian data, and non-Christian, non-religious, secular historical data confirms this, that Jesus Christ was crucified by Pontius Pilate during the reign of Emperor Tiberius. Now, the best historical data, the most reliable historical data, including Written record, oil record, and eyewitness accounts confirm these five facts about the true event of Jesus' crucifixion. Number one, the tomb was empty after the third day. Number two, there's no possible way that the disciples could have stolen the body so as to propagate a lie. Number three, the Jews and the Romans could not show that there was a corpse. Number four, hundreds of eyewitnesses claimed to have seen the resurrected Jesus. Number five, some of those eyewitnesses were the most vocal opposers before the crucifixion and became the most vocal supporters after they claimed to see the resurrected Christ. Why? 
because he rose from the dead. It happened. He is God. He has authority. And whether you choose to acknowledge that or not, you will stand in judgment before him. And if he is a judge, let's continue to reason then. If he is a judge, there is a law, a moral law that all people must stand before. And the only way to pass judgment by this law isn't having your good outweigh your bad. The standard is perfect moral righteousness. Yet, Jesus himself is the only one who has attained this righteousness. So then how are we saved? Because Jesus himself became your sin. That if you believe that he died on your behalf, his righteousness might be attributed to your spiritual account and you would be saved. And on the day of judgment, you would stand before God and he would declare not guilty. And there would be a rich entrance into the kingdom of heaven. If you're honestly and willing to openly admit you came in today not believing, consider this, Christ has risen from the dead and will judge the living and the dead. And what will you do with that? Church, this is the gospel that if you have received, we've been called to invest. And oh, is it not a rich, joyful, satisfying gospel? Is it not truly more precious than gold? Is it not the living water of which we have drunk and we will never thirst again? Is it not the only hope for salvation for the whole world? But how can they believe if there is no one preaching? How can they hear if no one is sent? And indeed, church, Jesus himself said, as the Father has sent me, so I have sent you. Christ is coming back with his kingdom. And we can expect that. We can expect also that all of us will be held to account. We can expect that faithfulness will be abundantly rewarded. We can expect that faithlessness, it will be exposed and it will be condemned. And we can expect that Christ will slaughter, punish, bring a final end to his enemies. As we eagerly wait, we must be earnestly working. Let's invest the gift that God has given us. Christ taught us to pray in a certain way, didn't he? And before we sing one last song, I want you to stand with me and we're gonna pray that prayer together. If you don't know it by heart, it'll be on the screen. Matthew chapter six, this is what our Lord instructed us to pray. And if you believe it, say it with your true heart. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Father, we long for your kingdom. We long for your kingdom to come, and you have promised it would. 
We desire that your will would be done and thank you that we cannot just pray that in theory, but we can submit to that because we know your will. We know that your will is that we would invest the gospel here on earth amongst the lost that they might be saved, in the saved that they might be matured, and in the mature that they might multiply, and that your kingdom would expand, and that your name would be exalted. Oh, come, Lord Jesus, come. Thank you that you ever stand to make intercession that whoever calls on your name would be saved. You are ready to receive any who would call on the name of the Lord. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. Oh, we praise you that we've been given such a rich gift that we might invest God. Might we see much great return, 1,000% more than what we would sow into the fields of harvest. Oh Lord, oh Lord, send laborers into the harvest. Send laborers to work in the field. Send us, Lord God, use us. Let it be our cry here that we would be the faithful, that we would long for these words, well done. Good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of your master. Your kingdom come, your will be done. This we pray in Christ's name, amen.